It's 12 and Up, Season 11, Episode 7B, The Deep Conversation, with your host, Jonathan Malone, and guest host, Paul Ford. Paul Robeson Ford. Well Enough is a podcast about Christian faith and culture in the modern age. Your host, Jonathan Malone, is the pastor of the First Baptist Church of East Greenwich, Rhode Island. Paul Robeson Ford is the pastor of the First Baptist Church at Highland Ave in Winston-Salem. Of all the First Baptist churches in, Hi- in Winston-Salem, this is the good one. This podcast is brought to you by Guilt. Have you called your mother today? Did you send her a card? Are you feeling guilty? No? Then you need to spend some more time in reflection because there's something you didn't do that you need to. Guilt. And we're back. So we're going to be hearing the deep conversation that I had with Paul Ford. Paul's a good friend of mine, and he's been on this show a number of times. He used to live in the Massachusetts area, and we would always have breakfast before um, we would record an episode. And I really enjoyed that. Um, cost me an arm and a leg, but you know what? Paul's worth it. But now he's moved to North Carolina, Winston-Salem, and uh, so I can't get him breakfast. I just can't do it. I tried. So uh, we're going to be talking about the 400th anniversary of anniversaries. Now, it's been 400 years since we have records of slavery being brought into the United States. And I think Paul just likes watching me squirm and be uncomfortable and putting me on the spot, and appropriately so. And it's a very good conversation. We get into some pretty, I think, important parts of, of different ways of responding and reacting, especially if you come from a white of European context. This is definitely for you. I do want to say that um, there is some language that, that Paul uses, and I think he uses it very appropriately, um, especially the N-word. I will not use that word, and I didn't get into that use of the word. We can have that conversation another time. I think it would be extraordinarily inappropriate for me to use that word. Paul, on the other hand, comes from a different context, and I will not edit out his use of that word. Um, I think he uses it carefully and deliberately, and I, I was not offended by it. I was made um, well, I was not offended by it. I do want to just share that with you in case this is a trigger for you. If this is something that may get in the way of you being able to hear the episode overall, you might want to go on to the next one. The next episode after this is going to be this great conversation about scripture I had with Michael Strickland or listen to some previous episodes. I hope that um, if this word, if that if the N word is difficult for you to hear, you wrestle with why that might be and still listen and ask yourself what's going on with you that it really cuts at a, in a different way. All that being said, that's not the focus of the conversation. Uh, so please don't make that the focus. Just want to let you know. I hope you enjoyed this conversation that I had with Paul Robeson Ford about slavery, racism, white supremacy, and America. All right, I am here with Paul Ford, the Reverend Paul Ford. He is the senior pastor, right, senior pastor? Senior pastor, man. Senior pastor of the First Baptist Church of Highland Avenue in Winston-Salem, yes, North sir. Carolina. Paul was for a long time a uh, pastor at uh, Union <coughs> Baptist, right, in Cambridge? That's correct, six Union, years. Yeah, six years at Union Baptist in Cambridge, good friend of mine. I bought him breakfast every time we recorded. This time I wasn't able to buy you breakfast. I'm really sorry about that, Paul. He bought me breakfast. Yeah. Used to do it. <laughs> I was gonna I was gonna put some eggs in an envelope and mail them to you, but you said no. <laughs> hey look, man, I understand, and if you get a box with some white powdery substance in it from me, you'll know how I really felt about that. <laughs> I'll just sell dehydrated powdered eggs. That's what I'll think. <laughs> or ricin. You know, they all look the same. <laughs> 
If it's my time, it's my time. That's all. <laughs> there you go, man. That's and if it's, by, it's my time by your hand, then that's what God wanted. That's if that's what the Lord led me to. <laughs> that's what... <laughs> in the name of John Brown and Nat Turner. <laughs> you know. Well, this is good theology we're doing right here already. This is real good theology. <laughs> exactly right. So you're at you're at the Winston Salem, um, which you know, so North Carolina. I haven't spent a lot of time in North Carolina, and I don't really want to. But every time I have it, it's, it's really nice. It seems like a really nice like place. The people down here, John, a lot of good people. They seem like that. It's it's only an inch deep. <laughs> At least the here up north, you know where we stand. Yeah, no, look, man, people are real friendly to you down here, man. Now, yeah. now who knows what they're saying about you when you're right. around? They're real friendly to you down here. I tell you, up my, there, they just don't talk to your ass. They just don't, so. yeah. <laughs> my favorite was when I lived in Philadelphia. They'll talk to you. They'll cuss you out. And you're like, okay, I know where we are in our relationship. <laughs> are you sure that wasn't just you they were constantly that cussing? And they're all church members, I didn't have too. that experience in Philly, John. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it probably was just me. So, Paul, we, we've done a couple of episodes. And and I've I've always try, I've tried not to say, you know, since you're, you know, an you know, since you're a black pastor, why don't we talk about racism in America? Because that's not fair. You have much more to offer, right? You much. Have, yeah. You know, I'm not going to pigeonhole you or put you in a box. And so this time I say, what do you want to talk about? And you <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> you go ahead, John. <laughs> and you say, why don't we talk about next year being the 400th anniversary of the introduction of slavery into the United States and... I, I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of paraphrase or soften up your language. The lackluster response of the white community. <laughs> what did I actually say in my message? I, I remember. To you, I think I think um, um, weak ass was part of it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it was, and I'm sure because I was talking to you and had you and your listeners in mind. <laughs> <That's Okay. right. laughs> I haven't even had a chance to respond yet. You already assumed that my response is going to be. Weak, <laughs> but I think it's a good. Um, why, don't, why, don't, why don't you give a little bit of a sense of what is of, of where you're coming from? I think I think it's an excellent topic. I'm glad to be talking about it. Well, look, you know, next year six. So next year is 19, uh, 2019, Excuse me, twenty nineteen, and there has been a marker put. It's not in imperfect. Uh, it's not a perfect mark. Let me re- revise it. It's not a perfect marker. Right. Uh, of, uh, you know, the history of people of African descent coming into the Americas. But in terms of a marker in time to say this is one of the first recorded instances we have of, you know, black people from the African continent, African diaspora being brought uh, to uh, what would eventually become the United States and being put into indentured servitude or slavery, depending on how you you read those historical documents and read that record, we're talking about 400 years. Yeah. And, you know, just as we acknowledged 500 years of the Reformation, I think in the past couple of years, it's an important marker. You know, the historians can quibble over when the exact marker should be. But we're talking about 400 years, and so it gives us an opportunity to look at the legacy of that 400 years, mm. starting from that point where black people were brought into this country in an unequal status, you know? And so the New School for Social Research and a group there has got a great website up called 400 Years of Inequality, Yeah, you know, looking at, uh, you know, this marker in time as a lens through which to look at that amount of time of inequality in this country, which, you know, is the least you can say about what has characterized the relationship of descendants of the African continent to North America, specifically the British colonies that eventually became the United States of America. There has not been um, a single extended moment now, of course, you know, uh, the stratification of black people hmm. as a second class and an inferior status did develop over time right. uh, in these colonies. And it was not in 1619 
what it was by the time you got to 1820 or 1830 when they really got scared of all these Negroes in their midst and said, we need to put some stuff in place and, and really tighten the screws on them because right. we're just worried about them rising up and killing us, hmm. uh, which certainly was justified under the circumstances. Yeah. Uh, and so, but that being said, that notwithstanding, I don't think it's very much of a stretch to argue that there has never been an extended moment mm. where black people in this country have experienced full equality. We haven't reached that point yet. Right. And any glimpses of it have just been glimpses that have not, you know, uh, proven to have enough behind them to sustain themselves. Because you're talking about changing hearts and minds, of course. And we have trained the heart and trained the mind for mm -hmm. hundreds of years, going back at least to 1619, if not before that, to look at black people as an inferior group of folks, to buy into what Kelly Brown Douglas has called um, the Anglo-Saxon myth in mm -hmm. terms of of Saxons being kind of the highest breed of person, the best work God ever did, um, and all the rest of us being somewhere down uh, the chain, you know, and us at the bottom of the chain. Right. You know? That's that's kind of yeah the way that I look at the significance of 1619 to 2019. You're going to see next year uh, a lot of different spins and interpretations of this over the course of the year. Um, you know, my only hope is that uh, everybody, uh, but certainly certain communities, will not squander hmm. the golden opportunity um, to go deeper on this subject of inequality, the legacy of white supremacy, right. race, the way in which all of that is reflected in our present moment um, that we are living in, in this kind of Trumpist era, yeah. uh, reemergence, you know, of kind of more outlandish and unapologetic bigotry and racism, all of that sort of thing. You know, I'm going to be going to a press conference here at 11 o'clock today to deal with a situation where a young black girl at a middle school, predominantly white middle school, was manhandled, thrown to the ground, knee in her back, being arrested by a white school resource officer uh, because, according to them, she had been involved in some sort of fight or whatever, right? But she wasn't engaged in the fight then. Um, right. She was just trying to leave to go call her mother. And this guy takes it upon herself to throw her down in the school parking lot, stick his knee in her back like the girl that we saw got thrown out of her chair a few years ago in South right. Carolina. And it's like, what the hell is wrong with you? You wouldn't do this if this was a white young girl. There's just no way in hell that you would do this ever. Um, right. And, and that right there is something that, of course, should not be happening. It's, it's one of 15,000 other markers right. of the, that almost 400 years in. We're still dealing with this major inequality. And, and we're talking about something, a response that's something more than a day. Like, so, so I mean, we're, we're on the eve now of, uh, of Columbus Day or Indigenous Peoples Day, right? And, that was yesterday, I believe, wasn't it? Uh, <laughs> yes, it was. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was, yeah, we just had a couple days ago. Um, I, don't, I don't know. I worked. That's all I know is I'm like, I, either, either whatever you call it, whichever day you're recognizing, I still got to work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, gotcha. uh, but you know, and and, and you know, I, I think there's there's value to saying let's redefine the idea of Columbus Day. Let's bring in the idea of Indigenous Peoples Day. Let's start to redefine what that heritage is, what that legacy is. But there's a danger in that, and saying, well, you got a day, you got your <laughs> you got your day. Yeah. Isn't that enough? Well, what look, that's what we've said for years about um, Black History Month. Right. Uh, Black history is about more than the month of February. And of you got the shortest month in the year. Yeah, the short, yeah, first of all, it's the shortest month in the year. Um, that that was accidental, uh, as we say. That is one thing that we can say was not necessarily uh, part of the white supremacist conspiracy. As oh, okay. I, so I don't have to apologize for that. <laughs> you have to apologize for plenty of other I know, things. I know. I got a lot to apologize for. I have a you list of take all the that things. Take that one off your list. Take that one off your list. But uh, Negro History Week is, of course, what it started out as and then expanded out into a month. And, it, it you know, it lined yeah. up with Lincoln's birthday and all that that we celebrate in, right. in February because, of course, a generation, uh, black people for almost 100 years were Republicans because of Lincoln. Uh, right. Of course, the so-called party of Lincoln, as, as George W. Bush once called it, has long <laughs> since forgotten the mantle of Lincoln, long yeah. since forgotten. And under Trump, they have rejected the mantle of Lincoln. Oh, my God. Outright. 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 
rejected it and, and said it's a very dangerous time for white men in this nation. <laughs> Forget the mantle of Lincoln. I'm worried about the white planner class. Yeah, and boy, it's all- a good thing I've got my Second Amendment rights. That's all I have to <laughs> exactly say. Exactly right. I'd like to defend myself. So, you know, that's where all that comes from in terms of Black History Month. But we've said that for years, that, of yeah. course, black history is, is a year-round thing. Right. And, you know, everybody in this country, not just our people, should be learning black history year-round. Right. Um, because so much of what has advanced this country mm-hmm. has been because of the direct hands-on, hands-in contributions of black people, mm-hmm. either by hook or by crook. <laughs> right. because of voluntary servitude, you literally, black, you know, built the White House off the backs of black slaves, or... You know, this black inventor, that black inventor that was never right. given proper recognition for their involvement in the filament like Lewis Latimer or their involvement in um, the, uh, you know, traffic light uh, or whatever the case might be. Right. Uh, you know, has not been given proper recognition. So. Yeah. So so looking at we want more than a day. I like when you said it's, you know, changing hearts and minds. Yeah. 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 Uh, that's hard work, Paul. Is there something easier we can do? <laughs> <laughs> so, Jonathan, first of all, as one pastor speaking to another pastor, I'm offended <laughs> that you would even raise the question, that you would even suggest <laughs> that we should take the wider road that Jesus said leads to destruction <laughs> instead of going through the narrow gate, <laughs> okay, that leads to life. What kind of Christian pastor are you? I just want to go on record. I'm, I'm, I'm on an, this an day. American Baptist pastor. That's the kind on this of day that you have abdicated your calling as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ and are now advocating for us to not go through the narrow gate. Well, not all the time. Just like four days a week. That's all I ask. I'll I'll, I'll push for the narrow gate most of the time, but it's hard work, man. It's hard work, man. But you know what? We know from history that the harder work is the work that gets us further. Yeah, It's harder to do. It takes longer to do. There's a lot of blood, sweat and tears, literally blood sacrifice Mm -hmm. um, that is generally involved when you look at the trajectory and the history of resistance to oppression and how many people um, have had to give their lives in order uh, to be a part of these movements, many of which were ultimately geared at changing hearts and minds. Um, But the reality is it's the only way that has made uh, a lasting difference. And so, you know, the short answer is no, there isn't an easier way. Right. No, I know. Uh, but but there's also a sober acknowledgement uh, that because of the the nature of what it takes to change heart and minds, it's never going to be accomplished in any one person's lifetime. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's that's kind of the, the sober reality kind of you have to make peace with this dynamic that all of us who really care about this have to confront and deal with that I may work and live diligently and faithfully uh, for the cause of Christ and the cause of righteousness and, and, and the cause of justice, mercy and kindness um, and the cause of being a peacemaker in this world. And I'm probably still going to die with all of that having not yet been manifested fully <laughs> in right. the world I live. Right. So there's yeah. a real, I mean, theologically, I would say, you know, I don't, it would be hard for me to do this work if I didn't have a robust eschatology. If That's I didn't cr- have this sense that someday, you know, I'm part of the movement towards the kingdom and That's we're, cr- we're going to get there. That's correct. Yeah. You know, Jonathan, every time I'm ready to give up on you, you say something really <laughs> profound that resonates with me. And I'm like, wow, this guy really must be thinking seriously about Jesus and God. Oh, my goodness. Four days a week, I think, seriously. About Jesus and God. The other days. Okay. Eschatology is the key. Yeah. And I actually had a, a, an older white woman come up to me who's been, um, you know, coming to our Friday noon service on a regular basis. She's actually a, a self-identifying Quaker, uh, okay. but she comes to our, our church frequently and, and, you know, was just remarking to me um, how, you know, inspired she has been by some of the preaching that me and my assistant pastor have done over the past few weeks, but also mm-hmm. how she's just really struggling, uh, you know, to really understand how, 
we make it through the history that we've had to live into, yeah. given how hard she's having it, making it through just this moment we've been in, especially in these past few weeks yeah. uh, with what's going on um, in the nation and what I've called this kind of moral reckoning with our history of sexual assault and abuse. And, you know, what I said to her, because, you know, I, I knew she was well versed enough to really appreciate this. I said, you, you know, it's important to understand that the concept of the eschaton and the concept that drives eschatology is the most powerful concept mm. that we have in the Christian faith for addressing that very question. The already present, but not yet here. Yeah. We have to have, uh, in a way that is probably best described as core belief, we have to have a core belief that is already present because if you know, if we have to wait till it's already here, we might not make it. Right. You know, the energy that we have to live right now is is the belief that because of what Christ did on the cross, it's already present. But we also see every single day it's not yet here in terms of being made fully manifest. Oh, so beautiful. we live in this tension, you know. Yeah. So so that eschatology, that hope, that profound hope that I'm participating in something that is happening and I'm still and in will that, happen. It yeah. is happening and will happen and, more fully. Right. That's essential. Yeah. And so I yeah, and, and that's something I think we can offer to other pastors or other other believers. Those who are not believers, um, let me know how you do it. Oh honesty. Yeah. I, I mean seriously, I don't know how you do it without a faith. Like rap for them, Jonathan. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> as I said as I said to your atheist friend that you brought on when we were over there at your oh, church right, right. years ago. <laughs> yeah. I said, I think it's a rap for you, man. Just stop trying to fool us, man, that you don't believe in something, man. We know you do. <laughs> we know you do. And that's why you head over to the pastry joint on Saturday mornings. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, Done, Boy, right? if I could, I, if I could take a Sunday morning where I could not go to church and just like sleep in, do the Sunday New York Times, uh, the crossword, that'd be great. Well, I go to Bedside Baptist. That's my favorite Sunday morning activity. Oh. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, you know, Jonathan. Just as a side note, yeah. I actually had one of my members not show up to church one Sunday, and she's constantly on Facebook, and she Facebook posted. That morning, while we were having church, oh. that she was at Bedside Baptist, <laughs> I went and called her out. I said, did you seriously just advertise that you were at Bedside Baptist? I called her out by name. I said, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> that's, that's the thing we deal with, man. That, well, yeah, like, people, yeah. that's People go to church. Go to church. Yeah. You'll be a better person for it. Just go Community, to, it's fellowship. That's right. And And if you can't, send in your pledge. That's right. Amen. At the very least, give us your money. At the very least. No, um, I think part of the challenge that I've been finding for myself and for um, um, people that I work with within the white community on this this topic, uh, really, when we're talking about like 400 years of a systemic racism, uh, is is first is really owning it as an individual. And and a common response that I hear is. Well, I know I'm not racist because I see everyone equally. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, look, John, I, I think that the work for sincere white allies like yourself, mm -hmm. especially pastors, if you accept as all called ministers should, hmm. the prophetic obligation, what I call prophetic obligation to witness as John did, a voice crying out in the wilderness, especially us as Baptists. You know, yeah. I, I said to some folks I was preaching to the other day, you know, I come out of Matthew 3, you know, where he's calling out the brood of vipers as they come to the water to be baptized. I said, <laughs> yeah, the I wonder how many are... you are to greet one of the people coming to get baptized in your waters, you <laughs> brood of vipers. Who told you to flee the wrath to come? <laughs> Right. I said, I wonder how I wonder if any of us are ready to say that. There's a method that, of church growth, you know, huh? Baptized in our pool. <laughs> but you know, I said, look, guys, I stand here in the legacy of John the Baptist, who led a movement in his own right and turned that movement over to Jesus Christ, you know, hmm. his younger cousin who we saw as the Messiah and who we accept as the Messiah. But especially as that, I mean, when you look at the story of John the Baptist, he was leading a revolutionary movement. Um, these messianic yeah. movements were revolutionary because we know that back in those days, 
There was no even concept of this kind of notion of separation of church and state that we have. Everything religious was political and things that were political were religious. And so if you started a messianic movement, that was as much a movement against the emperor as it was against the temple priests and, and, you know, institutionalized uh, religion. And this is a guy who's out in the wilderness eating locusts and wild honey, you know, and and, uh, prepare the way of the Lord, you know, voice crying out in the wilderness. And so I think that we have to understand that there is a prophetic witness mm. that folks like yourself have to take on to educate other folks who look like yourself mm-hmm. that there's a difference, as I put it, between bigotry and racism or white supremacy. OK, good. And problem is people have confused and conflated the two for so long mm-hmm. so you know that i can say if i'm average joe white guy well i you know i would never call anybody a nigger or a spick or a faggot or this or that you right. know uh, uh and and i'm gonna treat these folks equally when they come into my store or I, i'd be just as willing to pick them up and take them for a ride in my car as anybody else you know so i'm not a racist well it's not enough right uh, that, that, that means you're not a bigot amen praise god uh, it, it means you're probably a nice guy. Um, but white supremacy and its legacy is so entrenched institutionally in this nation. Right. Structurally, it's so entrenched in, in, in what Cornell West and others have referred to as kind of a cultural hegemony, mm-hmm. you know, that there is intentional and proactive work that has to be done to really pull that stuff up by the roots. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And to separate the wheat from the chaff, as Jesus would say, and and throw that chaff into the unquenchable fire, because this is where this goes. I mean, you know, uh, Dr. Cohn, the late Dr. Cohn, said it years ago in one of his first books, simply put, racism is evil, kill it. <laughs> you know, he had that, took that voice to his grave, racism is evil, kill it. You know, <laughs> and, and just a recognition right. of the evil of racism and white supremacy. And, mm-hmm. you know, this is, of course, where we can really help people. And I said this to my church the other day. I mean, the world and our nation desperately needs a church that has got its priorities in the right place Mm. so that we can be a moral anchor, a moral example, and a moral center for a nation in particular that is enduring a season of absolute moral depravity. I mean, we are are living through um, a deep level of corruption in our government. Uh, You know, I said to my folks, just reflecting on what the Senate had done and was on the verge of doing uh, around Brett Kavanaugh, I said, these folks are corrupt to their core. Mm. I'm talking about biblical levels of corruption. I'm talking about the the kind of sentiment that Peter had when he said, save yourself from this corrupt generation. What is going on right now in the United States Senate that is exemplifying the behaviors of the Charles Grassies and the Orrin Hashes and the Lindsey Grahams and and just this Republican group in general, you know, and and just this farce that was, you know, Susan Collins whole dithering and deliberating, supposed dithering and deliberating over what she was going to do over Kavanaugh. She was always going to vote for Kavanaugh. You know, the the investigation gave her cover, you know, to vote for and all, and then to come out and make a closing argument for why at the end of the day you shouldn't believe the women, uh, you, you know, and, right. and that's astonishing. And they put up a woman to do it, you know. And I said these folks are corrupt to their moral core, and the only way that the church can be that way is if we are offering people this theological understanding. So many of these things that are going on in our society right now are manifestations of evil. Hmm. Our manifestations of the work of the enemy, which I always prefer to the devil or Satan, you know, which gets you these kind of hokey cartoon characters. But the work of the enemy. Right. Uh, Star Wars fan, the dark side of the force. Right, <laughs> right, right. And, and to recognize that if we claim it as such, then we can go back and look at the nature of evil. Evil hmm. is pervasive. Evil is insidious. Evil manifests itself in ways, as the Bible says, you know, he shall come as an angel of light. And right, that's right. why Luther had this, his deepest obsession was with the notion that we were going to be deceived into believing that, that, that right was wrong, was wrong and, and good was evil and all of that. And it seems like such a simple concept. But, Jonathan, if you really look at it, mm-hmm. if you look at this whole sector of people we have in this nation who are just showing up 
to all of Trump's rallies and carrying on with him. These people are deceived, Jonathan. Right. They're deceived in, in, in a biblical, theological yeah. kind of way. So part of, deceived. So part of our work then is to give it a name, to yes. name it. I mean, I that's agree. that's there's power in naming. Yes, al- there is. Always has been. And. And so, and then bringing it back to to the personal, the individual work, because that's the you know the hearts and minds such. I, yes. And I think we're uh, and we'll get to the systemic as well, because I think it has to be a both and, sure. um, or I would suggest, um, is naming not just you could say like, well, I treat everyone the same, which you're like okay, maybe you do, um, <laughs> right? But you know, uh, but then uh, but then starting to name, you know, for me a, a big challenge for, uh, was naming my privilege. Mm. Like really owning that, um, you know, if for some reason, for some reason I, I lost the job where I'm working now, you know, the church I'm serving now, I'll be okay. And in mm. large part, I'll be okay because I'm white and male, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, and the resources I have. And you're furry. And what? And you're furry as well. And I'm furry. Yeah. White male and furry. Yeah. I'm, well, that's white, the Italian in me. I do pretty well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, I'll, I'll, I'll survive cold climates pretty easily. <laughs> Got a good, but, but also, but yeah, I mean, it, you know, if I get pulled over by a police officer, I can pretty much feel like I'll be okay because I'm white and male. Nah, you'll make it out alive. Yeah. And, and, and that's, and that is, you know, an easy example of privilege, I think, and and it and I, I do believe it goes deeper than that. It goes further than that, and and that um, for I, what I've noticed for a lot of people, it's hard to even go that far mm. to say I have privilege because of just because of who I am, because of what I look like, and I have no control over that. And why do you think that is, Jonathan? Because I have my own theories, but I want to hear yours. Okay, from yeah, I think it. it I, I think there is this desire we want to live in. It, it goes contrary to the American narrative that's been taught and passed down that anyone can show up and work hard and they can make it. it and it's contrary to that narrative because then it says, no, you, I mean, maybe you worked hard, sure, but you also had a leg up already and it's not a fair system. And, and then once we start to see that and own that, you know, and if we look at our, our basket and our basket is full of, of like chocolate eggs, I don't know why, but I like chocolate eggs. What kind of monster doesn't? So let's say, you know, my basket is full of chocolate eggs and I look at the person next to me and they have like three chocolate eggs and they say, this is just how this is going to start. You know, unless I'm a selfish prick, something in me is going to stir. It's like, well, this doesn't feel right, but I don't want to give up my chocolate eggs, but it doesn't feel right. Mm-hmm. So I'm what I'll do is I will treat that person nice you know in a, in a very fair kind way but please don't ask me to give up any of my chocolate eggs so it comes out of this sense of like it's starting to stir that the american narrative that we've been taught doesn't really line up with the reality once we realize the privilege that that many of us that many people that look like me have right and then there's so then we start to have a cognitive dissonance and have to work through that no i mean i think you're on to something john and, and the the two observations that I would make mm. is that, you know, one of the important pieces here is deconstructing that American narrative that you're talking about. Yeah. And in particular, looking at the construction of whiteness in this nation's history, right? Yeah. If we understand that race is a social construction, but it's the most powerful social construction, arguably, that we have ever come up with. Yeah. And looking at the fact that, you know, of course, genetically, we're all pretty similar and all that sort of thing. But when it comes to the melanin and the color of the skin, because, you know, I I put it very simply that you have to understand that race is the politics of color, you know, Mm. especially in this age where we have much more what they used to call miscegenation and and racial mixing and all that. And it's become mainstream. We still have to understand that race is the politics of color Mm -hmm. and to recognize the fact that, you know, when Irish came here as an immigrant group. When the Italians came here as an immigrant group going Mm -hmm. back into the early middle 19th century, they did not come here and walk into the same level of status and privilege as the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, you know, that had been here for 50, 60, 70, 80, 100 plus years. Right. In fact, um, 
you know, there have been authors who have pointed out and, and just said point blank that the Irish came here as niggers and became white. Yeah. And the Italians came Definitely here the Italians. All niggers and became white. Yep. And the reason why they were able to become white was because of skin color. Right. Right. Where yeah. the problem is that for people like me. We come here as niggas and we stay niggas, <laughs> yeah. you know, and that's why Jay-Z had that great song in his recent album, Still Nigga, <laughs> you know, no matter what kind of wealth you achieve, mm-hmm. prominence you achieve, still nigga, you, yeah. you know, what, what position you achieve in the government, whatever, still nigga, you know, and, and, and that's the reality of the politics of color. And I think most, you know, people in this in this country don't know that history right. uh, because we're still a predominantly undereducated or uneducated populace. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there, there's the guys like you and me that have attained some level of formal education and whatnot. But the reality is most people have not. Most right. people are still not passed a high school diploma uh, or, or just barely through the community college. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're not being exposed to this this history, um, you know, and so it is easy for them to uncritically embrace this myth of the American narrative. Um, mm, the reality yeah. is that only those of certain skin complexion have been able to fully leverage that promise, if right. you will, okay? And that's been that way from the get-go. That history has to be unpacked. Here's yeah. the other, you know, and it's connected to the thing I just said. We know that the majority of white people in this country don't have it easy, right? right. I mean, the majority of white people in this country are not part of the upper class, mm-hmm. not part of the upper middle class. Right. Uh, have all kinds of major wealth that they have inherited. Uh, it's not talked about in this country, uh, but the reality is most white people are working class, mm-hmm. right? It was said years ago that as much as they wanted to pigeonhole uh, and, and convince people that that welfare mothers uh, were all these black people, black women, the average welfare mom was an 18-year-old white woman. You know, right. that, that was the statistical truth at the time that that was being put out there. It may still be the case. So the majority of white people in this country are working class. Mm -hmm. You know, they are working class poor. They are not working class and just poor, Uh, you know, that sort of thing. And so, of course, you know, they look at it. Well, you're not going to come talk to me about privilege that I have. I'm struggling to make it. Haven't been to the dentist in forever. Half my teeth are coming out. I drink too much dang Mountain Dew. Mm -hmm. I'm living over in Kentucky. I got to chop coal off of the mountain because I can't afford to to pay for it through the the gas company or or, or the utility company, you know. And and so that's a harder conversation to have. But it starts with the simple fact, look, you clean yourself up, take a shower, clean yourself up, go to the thrift store and put on some decent clothes Mm. and start walking around in downtown. You got a leg up on a brother who shows up in Mm. full suit and has no record of poverty like you do, right? And those were the studies that were done some years ago Mm. that looked at the fact that a um, white guy with a criminal record had a better chance at getting a job than a black guy with no criminal record. Which is absurd. It's absurd. It's yeah. absolutely absurd if we put any you know valence or credence to the notion that a criminal record might suggest there's some questions, you right, know, right. your character or whether I can trust you, you know, to work for my company. Um, and what is that as an example of skin privilege and mm. certain assumptions that we make? Yeah. Uh, you know, so I think there are entry points. Yeah, Um, we are at a point, John, as I'm sure you've heard this before, where a lot of black people are tired of educating white people about this kind of stuff. Yeah, Um, I am one who's still willing to do that, uh, largely for theological reasons. Um, Well, thank you. It is a Christian duty. I mean, you know, man, I want to help guys out like you because you need a lot of it. But, (laughs) you know, that I I think that a that's something that white folks have to recognize. Yeah. And so remind me to talk to that. I want to speak to that point, but finish your, well, so the best thing for, for guys like you to do in predominantly white churches to be Mm. thinking about and for the predominantly white sectors of the Christian church to be thinking about is how is we can, how is, how can we as white people Mm -hmm. without asking black folks to do, do it for us. Right. 
reinvigorate or recommit or commit in a way we never have during the year 2019 mm. to really learning about the, the, the yeah. Anglo-Saxon myth, yeah. really learning uh, uh, about the, the deconstructed uh, American narrative, mm -hmm. really mm -hmm. learning about the history of whiteness in this country, um, really understanding what 400 years of inequality means yeah. and that it doesn't just stop and start with Oh, you know, back in the day, we used to call all these guys niggers and coons. Yeah, that, that was just a little manifestation right. of a much deeper issue. Right. So, yeah, and that and that gets I mean, actually you kind of got to the point I was I was thinking about that. I wonder if, you know, there's something there, there needs to be this level of uh, for white people to say, you need to get your house in order. And you That's need right. to stop relying on black people to come in and get your house in order for you. That especially mm -hmm. leaders of communities, um, and you know, speaking to myself and other pastors, you know, it should be more on us than us like f trying to find a facilitator or an educator. It's like, why don't you do some of the hard work of educating yourself and trying to educate your people and dealing with their pushback and dealing with their anger um, and their resentment and saying, but let's keep working at it before you're ready to invite in someone else. You know, right, right. That's. I mean, that's a. I, and I don't know if that is a good idea, or because sometimes it's good to bring in an outsider. Well, I, I think John that there, there's an analysis that has to be done of where your people are at. Yeah. And what they're open to, because the reality is, you know, yeah. when I was up in the Boston area during those six years. You know, I started getting invitations to go around to Unitarian Universalist churches, and they were basically bringing me in as the black guy to talk about race and, and white supremacy, because, of course, the UUA has been obsessed with being anti-racist and all right. this stuff like the past five or ten years. And they years. bring in one black guy and they say, OK, good, we're done. Well, that's that's the critique. That's yeah. the eternal critique. And the thing <laughs> is, these churches had to understand that when I came in, I wasn't coming in with kid gloves on. I yeah. wasn't coming in to pussyfoot it or to try to make it palatable to them and 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 make sure they were comfortable with how I was going to talk about this. You, you know, I came in with the profile that I live into sometimes of Malcolm X with a cross on. Mm, and, yeah. and, you know, I think that part of what white people have to be ready to deal with is black anger. Yeah. Because, of course, for years, respectability politics uh, kind of made the expressions of black anger taboo hmm. and and expressions of black anger were always used by folks as an excuse to discredit and discount us mm -hmm. and and to to basically say we weren't ready um, to have a real adult conversation we were just proving why white people had the attitudes towards us that they had no you know black anger isn't always has been justified mm -hmm. and if we're going to have a real meaningful conversation about you know, moving towards sustainable reconciliation, there's going to have to be a space and an extended time where white people are simply willing to sit back and absorb a yeah. certain level of black anger and rage yeah. and not have the gall or even the thought to cast aspersions on that expression right. or to, to, to screw up their face in the face of that expression or to express some sort of no, not me attitude towards why that person is angry, but just open up your ears and your heart and your head and listen to it and hear it yeah. and try to understand, try, try, because yeah. it's all about the effort, the diligent, sincere, faithful effort, try to understand where it's coming from. And if you don't, have the courage to ask questions, right? right. I'm in a respectful fashion, uh, right, but right. have the courage to ask questions that will help your own understanding and be prepared to hear something else that's still also angry mm -hmm. and frustrated and everything because we've got at least 400 years worth of pent up rage, man. Yeah. yeah. You know, and it's legit. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. legit. You know, and if, if we think, and there's an opportunity, frankly. It, because I think it is going to be easier for some folks just because of the fact that this is a cross-racial phenomenon 
this manifest rage that we have been seeing in these women, primarily these survivors, hmm. you know, who have been the, the angry mob, you know, is Trump, oh, yeah. been, you know, calling uh, calling these folks who have been accosting Flake and other senators in the airports, in the halls of the Capitol building and and just uh, out of a tearful rage, I suppose, yeah. is, is the best phrase to put on it sharing their stories and and their anger and their frustration and their outrage at, like I said, this level of corruption in the Senate. Well, that's going on from hundreds of years of kind of sexism, misogyny, and patriarchy. And in some cases, just individual experiences that these women have had. Now, imagine multiplying that exponentially Mm -hmm. in terms of a history of a people. All right. Well, can you relate to why some of these women are so outraged? Yeah. Well, if you can resonate with at least uh, uh, a measure of that, just right. multiply that by 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90. And now you're starting to understand right. why black people, not all of us, but certainly a certain sector of us have this deep and abiding rage. I think that's yeah, I think that's really well put and and that speaks to the importance of people doing work ahead of time. Yeah. And and, and so so let's get real specific. I know the the 400 years of inequality website and I'll link to that. They have yeah. three things to do um and I think connected with three different books. That's right. Uh, so connecting with those, there are multiple other great works out there. I think we've seen um a nice uh, you know a good uh movement of works of literature being produced and there's been a lot of literature on this being produced for a long time i mean from you know w.e.b du bois and on um you know but it feels like to me in the last couple of decades it's increased the amount of you know literature on on this topic i think it has i think it has and, and so there's really no excuse yeah for anybody who's sincere and serious, and I always use these qualifiers because mm-hmm. we have to delineate between people who are just talking, you know, talking about um, being being interested in this stuff because they think it's what they're supposed to say in a certain context or a certain situation, and those who are sincerely from the heart. Uh, yeah. Because of course, Christ comes to test the intentions of our heart. Sincerely from their heart, um, wanting to get into this because they feel a sense of moral responsibility. Yeah. You know. Um, you want to uh, mark 2019, Jonathan, have a study group to mm. look at Kelly Brown Douglas's Stand Your Ground, uh, because mm. the treatment she gives of the Anglo-Saxon myth in the first part of her book, it's brilliant. I mean, she's a brilliant scholar. Yeah. She's one of the foremost women in scholars, particularly in this generation, Kelly Brown Douglas. Um, she has produced, uh, you know, some of the most important material in terms of taking womanism from its roots in the writings of Dolores Williams and, and others that were that right. first generation into this next generation, looking more deeply at, at some of the, the issues at the next stage in terms of sexuality issues. And now this whole issue of implicit bias and things of that nature. Right. And I have a study group looking at Stand Your Ground. There have been plenty of white churches that I know have done that. Um, similarly speaking, you know, you've got ta Coates and his writings out there. Yeah. He is. He has been anointed by Toni Morrison. And I think she's right. He's the James Baldwin of this generation. Yeah, he's good. Yeah. Um, you know, go back and, 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 and look at some old videos of James Baldwin. Look mm. at his pin drop speeches. It's been referred to that you can find on YouTube. OK. Uh, yeah. The brilliance of that man in terms of his incisiveness mm-hmm. and, and clarity of his critique and his willingness to put it out there. Yeah knowing it was going to make some of his listeners uncomfortable, but saying basically, I'm going to say it anyway. I mean, it, it was it was an example of prophetic courage. And, and what I have said, you know, from the pulpit for several years now is, is that really what we have been lacking in this time, and we are now starting to see the rise of it, is prophetic moral courage. Hmm. You know, uh, we're living in a country full of cowards. Yeah. Uh, and the corruption that we see in our government is largely made manifest in cowardice. Mm-hmm. You know, I give Heidi Heitkamp credit uh, for her vote against Kavanaugh, uh, because from the videos I've seen of her talking about how she came to to that point of voting, mm-hmm. she's tearful. Yeah. Talking about just looking back on my own life experience, I just couldn't vote yes. 
And, you know, as all the pollsters suggest, she's probably going to lose her seat in North Dakota. Um, as that's the way it's going right now. We'll see what happens, how strong yeah. the blue wave is. But she may lose her seat. But that's the level of courage that people right. have have and live by in order to set an example. And I'll have respect for her mm. that I'll never have for Susan Collins, mm. you know, in the years down on ahead, because she was willing to kind of operate out of her truth. Right. And right. not operate out of an elaborate lie, you know, and, and just a, a, a manufactured kind of bankrupt, morally bankrupt ration. Right. You know, which is what Susan Collins gave us. I mean, and, and, and to their credit, a lot of commentators jumped on it. You know, she comes out here and gives this dramatic 45 minute speech. And, and we're all sitting on the edge of our seat waiting to see where she's going to land at the end of it. You could tell from the beginning of her speech where she was going, yeah, yeah. you know, and McConnell gets up and calls this one of the great statesmen of the Senate. And Lindsey Graham, this is what it's about. And I said, B.S. I called mm -hmm. B.S. on this. This was an eloquent, elaborate farce. Yeah. You know, yeah, uh, uh, that's what this was, an eloquent, elaborate farce. It was the closing argument that you all needed a woman to make. OK, for your morally bankrupt argument as to how and on what you know, grounds this thin ice you're standing on, you're going to basically just say, you know what? Oh, Christine Blasey Ford, thank you. I really believe something happened to you, but no, thank you. You right, know, right, right. <laughs> let's go back to what we were looking at anyway, which is putting Brett Coven on the Supreme Court, you know? And, and so I think that, you know, coming back to this, this subject, of course, and what is required, right. And Back to the times that we're living in, these times call for prophetic courage. Yeah. And church and, and serious and sincere pastors like you and I are uniquely in the position and equipped to put that voice out there. Right. And this stuff matters. So that so that's I think the other end of the work that especially white communities need to do, not only the internal like do some reading, like do more reading, talk with each other, then start to talk with, you know, people of color to get, you know, so like, is this, you know, to say like, I've been reading this, you know, flesh out the experience that I've been reading about for me or help out, you know, always talk with humility, but then um, start looking at systems and structures. That's right. It's, it's one thing to change hearts and minds. And we need to do that, but we also have to address systems and structures and, and the system is rigged. The system it's, is rigged. rigged. Absolutely. But, you know, so I think what we cannot lose is the connection because the sort of persistent resistance of systems and structures mm -hmm. is in part because the hearts and minds have not fully got to the place where they yeah. need to be. It's got to be a both and. It's a both and. And I, I point out to people that we cannot lose sight of the fact that systems and structures are made up of individuals who mm -hmm. come together and support those system and structures, either implicitly mm -hmm. by doing and saying nothing or explicitly because they've decided that this, you know, corruption, uh, that great line from Syriana, uh, corruption is what keeps us safe and warm. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah. It's what keeps us safe and warm, you know, <laughs> that they have a vested interest in the corruption or the privilege. And so they don't want to let it go. But systems and structures are supported by people. Yep. And systems and structures are also dismantled by people. Yep. And one of the things that we have to be careful of, because it's part of the way in which the enemy triumphs, is ever getting to the point where we believe that these systems and structures are beyond our grasp right. to dismantle. When we say that it's too somehow big, we can't they do are it. their own independent existing being now that has mm. power over us, right? Yeah. And we can get back to talking about handles of power. I forget who was the famous white guy, one of your guys, Walter Wink. Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, Walter Wink. That's this yeah, is his Walter thing. Walter Wink. Engaging the powers that be, that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, one of my guys. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, one you. of your guys. We don't have man. a lot, you know, Paul. There's yeah, not a lot. <laughs> He's one of the best of your guys, man. Him and Philip and Dan Berrigan are some of the best you guys That's have. That's about man. it. I think those three. I think you got about hit them all. Maybe in this past Maltmont. 50 years, that's about it. If we go back a little <laughs> further, we can get John Brown in there, too. The best y'all ever had. Can we bring Rauschenbusch in just for the Baptists? A little bit, Good man. Good enough. I'll take it. A little bit. I'll take it. 
<laughs> but you know, seriously, yeah, I, yeah. I think that um, this goes back to the eschatological hope, mm-hmm. and this goes back to our identity as people of faith. Um, that the enemy wins when we essentially resolve ourselves to the notion that these systems and structures are um, undefeatable because they somehow hold power over us. And the reality is that our suffering in terms of leadership and from a policy side lasts as long as the populace is not willing to rise up, register to vote, mm. and vote the bums out, yeah. right? People are doing all the polls back and forth. Oh, we might have the Democrats take the House, but the right. Republicans might actually hold on or even increase in the Senate. Said, well, you know, you can do all that. The fact of the matter is, we could take the whole Congress. Yeah. If people got off their behinds and registered to vote mm-hmm. and voted out of a position of moral virtue and value. Yeah. Okay. And we're not endorsing one party or the other. We're now imbo- endorsing morality. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean you know, our, I, our biases are there. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, I've always yeah. I've said that when I've taught preaching, I said your preaching should always be prophetic. It should never be partisan. Right. In, in the sense that. Neither party, for sure, um, has uh, uh, cornered the right. market on right. moral virtue. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, as difficult as it is and as complicated as it is, this is a broad statement. But um, <laughs> the only kind of school of thought that I think has ever captured what it might look like to be consistent across the board morally is Catholic social teaching. Now, obviously, they go too far on birth control and things of that right. nature. But saying, look. You're going to be against abortion because you won't want to kill the unborn. That's fine. But be against the death penalty, too. You can't, you know, uh, fight to the death to keep people alive on one end, but then fight to the death to kill them on the other end and call yourself somehow morally consistent. There's no moral consistency. And that was still an argument within Catholicism because some didn't hold that. But uh, Colonel Bernard, I can't remember his name now, but he talked about the consistent thread um, from Chicago, a Chicago man. That's right. Absolutely. Absolutely. You always count on those Chicagoans. They're the ones who are known for their moral uprightness. That's correct. That's correct. That's why I spent some time there. That's why. That's right. Who I am right now. When I think of morality, I think of Chicago. (laughs) I got five more minutes, man. Yeah. So let's let's start to wrap it up in a sense. So for the next year, for 2019, it sounds like a couple of things for white churches. Anyways, I'm not going to even deign to suggest what black churches should be doing. That is far beyond. Anything I should. I wish you would try. Go ahead and try. No, no, no. Let's get into it, bro. Let's get. I'll kick your ass over Skype. Let's get into it. Yeah, right. Nope. (laughs) Not gonna do it. (laughs) There's a couple of lines I won't cross. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Only a few. Yeah, I know. Yeah, there's only a few. But so, um, so first, or not first, but do hard work. Do the hard work of engaging with this topic. The yeah, topic yeah. of racism and privilege. And white supremacy. White supremacy. Thank white you. Yeah. You really um, got to unpack that. White and, people, all people, but white people yeah. especially have to unpack what does that mean? How does it play? How is it constructed? Yeah. How and I'm going to ask if you we'll put a, I'll put a list of some, some books and movies that we would recommend. Paul, if you want to send me some afterwards yeah. so that I'll, they'll be on the show notes so you can engage. And there's a lot of good stuff out there, but you've got to keep at it. You can't just do one and say, like, I read in between the world and me, so I'm good now. No, no, you're not. <laughs> Absolutely. No, yeah, it's hard work. It's hard work. And and when we talk about Christ coming, you know, Christ, excuse me, coming to measure the intentions of the heart, uh, we really are talking about whether or not people are sincere. Yeah. And, and, and really desiring from the deepest center of the soul um, to engage in the work that can. And this is the hope we stand on ultimately lead right. to reconciliation. Yeah. Right. And then said the goal of confrontation is reconciliation. We got to deal with the confrontation first. And then start to really look at our laws, um, our yeah. policies. I mean, if, if your police force isn't doing any in your community, isn't doing any kind of bias training or implicit yeah. bias training. You bet, yeah, that's not good. You that's know? not good. You've got a problem. Yeah, right. <laughs> You've and got a just, problem. In- and yeah. you're going to leave like guys like me having to go and do press conferences like I'm about to be a part of in exactly. 45 minutes. So, so I mean, so and, and there's many other things. Anything that affects the poor, 
um, impacts the poor, cutting benefits, stuff like that. There's going to be – it needs to be addressed. All right? Absolutely. So, and, and understanding the overlap between race and class in this country. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, and it has been fed, you know, and, you know, honestly, and I, I was talking about this with a colleague of mine, some of the best theological work that has ever been done was done by the Latin American liberation theologians. Oh, yeah. Who, who took and leveraged mm -hmm. um, this deep knowledge in white Western theology that was known as theology back then. Right. Uh, they were well versed in that better than most you and I or anybody, you know, around. Yeah. But they leveraged it for completely anti-Western theological purposes yeah. in terms of looking at the situation on the ground in Latin America yeah. and Marxism and, and the fight on behalf of poor people and rising up from the grassroots and all of that. Yeah, and Gustavo Gutierrez's whole notion of the preferential option for the yeah. poor that has some of the deepest, best work that was ever That's done. That's good stuff. And that came out of also Paulo Freire's work, The Pedagogy for the Poor. So read that. So, and the last thing you can do, that last thing everyone should do, is you should all go at least once to uh, the First Baptist Church at Highland Ave. Yes, sir. Salem. Because uh, if you don't, you're a racist. Let's just put it <laughs> Pretty much. Pretty much. What time do you worship, sir? You have one? I how many said, services do you have? Did, why did you come to church here? Because you're a racist? <laughs> so but, that I'm not. Yeah. If I did it. <laughs> we have services at 10 a.m. every Sunday. There services at, at noon every Friday, you know, and Bible study twice on Wednesdays because we're real Christians, unlike you guys. Twice. So I only got one Bible, Bible study on Wednesdays. I'm surprised you have any Bible studies. I know. I started to think, like, maybe we should start looking at this book. There might be something. <laughs> you, think, you think it might help? <laughs> I preached all through Tillich Systematics, and I thought, well, <laughs> what do we got now? <laughs> When you get done with the ground of being, what's next? <laughs> I guess Maybe the we'll Bible. Bible. <laughs> well, let's try it. Paul, it's when always. When you get done talking about Christ and culture, where are we going next? <laughs> the dialectic. Paul, it's always good to have you on the show. You always bring such wisdom and insight and that prophetic voice. And I love how you weaved your rileage into this. This was excellent. Uh, but, you know, thank you very much. Do you want to have a last word? John. You know, look, I'm going to say this for you, man. Okay. When I first met you, I don't know what I think about this guy. <laughs> he really seems like just another example of a white guy who's hoping if he makes one more black friend, he'll be okay in the world. <laughs> and I said, you know what? <laughs> I'm going to humor him. When we were over there at Estes Park, I'm going to humor him. I'm, I'm still coming into my own blackness. I've known guys like him for years. I'm going to humor him. But I'm going to tell you, man, over the years, I have realized that I was right. But you're still okay anyway. All right, good enough. I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> I've realized that I was right. But just... you're a nice guy. And so you said, you know what? It's totally okay. Yeah. I bought you breakfast before. You did before yeah. in the past, past yeah. tense. Well, I got a. Yeah. I just couldn't get the airline ticket to Winston Salem. But when I no, get right. it, when I get there, the bo box with the white powder is coming your way. But look, <laughs> man, it's always good to be with you, man. We got to do this every now and then, man. I yeah. enjoy it. You know, we can have honest, open conversations, man. It's important, and and I always appreciate that, you know. And I believe there's hope because there's a few guys out there like you. A oh, few. Good. Thanks. Thanks for being on the show, Paul. One of the things I really like about Paul is that he doesn't take it easy on me. He just, he really lays it out, doesn't he? He's kind of just calls me to count, calls me to task. Calls me to count? I don't know what that, accountability? He calls me into a level of accountability? Well, regardless, I like how Paul just pushes. And, and I hope that push is heard by all of my white brothers and sisters out there, uh, especially as you consider next year, the anniversary of beginning of of slavery historically i know it's 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 messier than that but do something if you aren't if you already don't have a, a book group or a discussion group in your community or congregation start that the changing hearts and minds has to start 
with the conversations just amongst ourselves. Um, if you have, if you want to be an ally, you've got to work on yourself, and you got to work on yourself as a community. Okay, you heard all this. There's no need for me to rehash it. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation. I hope you found it inspiring and engaging, illuminating, challenging, all those fun things that uh, a good conversation about races and white supremacy um, is supposed to be. Uh, but thank you very much for listening. I do deeply appreciate you listening. Uh, if you want to send any comments about this show, and I hope you do, I hope this has stirred something up in you, uh, please send those to 12enough at gmail.com. That's written out, 12enough at gmail.com. Come to the website where you can find the show notes, where you'll find the resource list of uh, books that Paul and I suggest, uh, recommend that you read if, if you want to engage in this really important conversation, and that's 12enough.com. Again, 12enough is written out. Go to the Facebook page and like us on Facebook and follow along. Every now and again, I talk about who I'm going to be talking to and those kind of things, and that's Facebook slash 12enough. There's a theme. Uh, and please like and rate the show. That really does help. And as I've been saying, this is my kick for, for season uh, 11 or season 7, episode 7. I, I don't know what, whatever, wherever we are. This is my kick is that I really could use some help doing this um, this project, this endeavor. I, I enjoy it. I know it feeds a lot of people. Um, not physically. I couldn't even buy Paul breakfast. But um, if you can help out, if you'd like to help out in any way, if you want to be a, become a part of the 12 Enough team, the 12 Enough family, the 12 Enough commune, uh, well, all right, it's going to get weird. Uh, you know, let me know. Send a note or something to 12enough at gmail.com. Let me know how you'd be willing to help. Um, it takes a village to raise a podcast. And, and this village is a little too small. So, as always, I do appreciate you listening. Tell your friends about it. Tell your neighbors about it. Tell your enemies about it. <laughs> and thank you very much for listening. Enough is a podcast about Christian faith and culture in the modern age. Your hosts were Paul Robeson Ford, the Reverend, uh, pastor of the First Baptist Church uh, Highland Avenue in Winston-Salem, and Jonathan Malone, the pastor of the First Baptist Church of East Greenwich, Rhode Island. The thoughts, ideas, opinions, ruminations, moments of brilliance, moments of just getting that anger out, moments of saying, geez, I'm really sorry. Um, uh, do not reflect their churches, their congr their families, their friends, their denominations, other places of employment, other places of convenience, other places of connections, other places where they just might want to go and look at cats. Because cats can be calming. And cats can bring out that sense of peace. Or they can just drive you nuts. These are their own ideas. This is their podcast.